The following message is from the 2014 IBCD Summer Institute, Making Peace with the Past. Okay, let's talk about um, handling evangelistic opportunities and counseling, and maybe it would be good for us just to pause and pray and ask God for help, shall we? Father in heaven, thank you for the beautiful day that you have given us. Thank you, Lord, for all the different churches that are represented here, um, the various gift sets that are represented, the um, experience, uh, background, so much great ministry that is being done in your name. And, and we just thank you for the privilege of being able to come aside for a couple of days and um, to try to learn from you, to try to learn from one another. And um, Father, we, we need your wisdom in um, everything that we do, and especially when it comes to this particular issue, when you would bring someone across our path who may not know you personally. Um, Father, we not only want to handle uh, a situation like that, we want to handle it well. Um, and so, um, would you um, help us as we would discuss these matters in this next hour? I pray that Christ would be exalted. I pray that we would be true to your word. And Lord, I pray that you would give us an increased passion and confidence in situations like this. And um, Lord, I just want to thank you for the privilege of being an ambassador for Jesus Christ and thank you for how counseling so frequently can be a, a marvelous setting in which to uh, fulfill that role. So would you help us in this hour? Uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in handling evangelistic opportunities in counseling, I, I realize that um, some might be surprised that we would even um, have a topic like this at a counseling conference. And if somebody say, well, I thought you folks um, were just interested in counseling, or I thought you believed that counseling was the most important thing going or the most thrilling thing going, that was the only note on your ministerial piano or, or whatever, and therefore you wouldn't have any interest in evangelism. And um, I, I want to try to assure you that none of those things are true. In fact, I've had the privilege, and I, I never anticipated this as I was going through seminary, but um, I've had the privilege of getting to know a number of the leaders of the biblical counseling movement personally, and um, I think I can speak um, from my experience with them um, that they are passionate about seeing men and women come to Christ. Um, I grew up in a home where my mother was a believer and my father wasn't, and um, toward the end of my father's life, he did... Um, demonstrate an increased openness to hear the gospel. And so one night we were having a NANC conference back when ACBC was called NANC. Um, we were having a NANC conference at our church in Lafayette, and um, Jay Adams was the featured speaker that particular evening, and he was going to speak on the topic of forgiveness. And um, unbeknownst to me in advance, my unsaved father and mother showed up for that plenary session. And it was probably... 10 minutes before the start of the session when they came in and I quickly tried to find them a seat. The auditorium was just packed already. And then I mentioned to Jay, who knew my family background, I mentioned, hey, my, my unsafe father's here. And um, that's all I said to Jay. I didn't want to put him under any pressure. I mean, I didn't ask him to do anything differently. I just mentioned that to him. And if you go back and listen to that tape of that session, um, the first five minutes of Jay's talk were directly to my dad. Um, he um, specifically and creatively and, and, and powerfully um, retailored his message um, on the fly 
um, specifically to present the gospel to my father. And, and whatever you think about Jay, those are the kind of thoughts I have about him. Adam, we haven't always agreed on every last little thing. Uh, so what for him or for me? But I'll tell you, um, if you're going to start uh, just whacking Jay, you probably need to duck if you're around me because I have a lot of very positive memories about him. And um, that tells you something about his evangelistic heart. And that tells you something about his passion for seeing um, men and women um, come to know Christ. Um, I, I also just want to throw this out. I, I realize some of you might say, you know, I thought, um, I thought you people in the biblical counseling movement, or at least in ACBC, um, tended to be Calvinistic. So, so I'm surprised that you would be talking about uh, evangelism because you're so um, Calvinistic. Well, that's a hot potato for sure, but um, since you brought it up, um, let me just uh, uh, address it. Honestly, if you looked at the, the broad picture at least, and I realize there's all kinds of different flavors. I'm also involved in an organization called the BCC, the Biblical Counseling Coalition, so I fully believe that the biblical counseling world is a lot bigger than ACBC. But since some of you are, are probably most familiar with that um, brand uh, of counseling, if you got the, the leaders of that organization together, it's highly likely that most of them would self-identify as a Calvinist. Um, if you gave a number of us all sorts of time to qualify exactly what we meant, but, but there's no question, I think, that the leadership of that organization tends to be Calvinistic, and I would put myself um, in um, that particular category and camp as well. However, I do not believe that um, it's incompatible to be both a strong Calvinist and also passionate about outreach. In fact, I have the view that if your Calvinism has dulled your passion for outreach, that there's something wrong with your Calvinism. And because I think the more you understand the doctrines of grace, the more passionate you ought to be about seeing people come to Christ, the more creative you ought to be, and the more confident that you ought to be uh, uh, about that. So if a person's brand of Calvinism has made them less aggressive evangelistically, I think there's something wrong with their Calvinism. And I'm saying aggressive in a biblical sense, in a, a balanced sense. But the bottom line is Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord and model, loved lost people. And he went out of his way, literally and figuratively, to reach men and women with the good news of salvation. That there's never, ever been anyone more interested and more passionate about reaching the lost than our Savior and his brand of Calvinism if I could use a silly phrase like that, his perfect understanding of the balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility surely did not dampen his evangelistic zeal. So if you would come to a conference like this and be surprised that people who are involved in counseling would have an interest in evangelism or people who tend to be Calvinistic would have an interest in evangelism, I hope when we're done you'll be far less surprised because you'll see how all of that fits together in what I think is a, a very robust ministry package. Now, if you do counseling on any sort of regular basis, and I understand even in a group like this, there, there's all sorts of perspectives. Some of you, you've been counseling forever. 
Um, you're counseling with John the Baptist. I mean, you've been, you've been doing it forever. And if some of you have not counseled yet at all, you're kind of just checking this out. Maybe your pastor asked you to come to a conference like this. So I understand there's all sorts of different spectrums um, represented in this room. But if you've done any counseling at all, you realize that um, you're not into it very long before you are coming across men and women who don't know the Lord. Especially if, and I understand that there's differences in settings too. I should probably explain. Our church for over 30 years has had a biblical counseling ministry to our community. And so on Mondays, this is the way we do it. We have um, about 24, 25 of us, uh, many of our pastoral staff members, a number of medical doctors who come away from their busy medical practice to work with us on Monday, along with some key um, lay men and women who have been thoroughly trained. But they come together on Mondays, and we offer biblical counseling services to our community free of charge. So when you do the math, we all counsel somewhere between three to five hours each, depending on our schedule and all the rest. But we're providing somewhere between 60 and 100 hours of biblical counseling services to people in our town every week. Well, well, frankly, um, a significant percentage of those persons who come to see us are as lost as balls in high weeds. In fact, that's one of the reasons we have a counseling ministry is because of all of the outreach opportunities that it affords. Now, our, our church, that we try to be high-octane when it comes to outreach and high-octane when it comes to community penetration. So, frankly, if it's not illegal or immoral, we're probably going to try it. And when it comes to the matter of winning people to Jesus Christ, and this is summertime in Indiana, and we got tons of outreach ministries going on um, all summer long, and I think any church worth its salt ought to. It's like fishing. The best way to catch fish, if you know anything about that, is to have as many poles in the water, as many lines in the water. And I realize you might say, did you realize that's illegal? Well, I'm not really talking about fishing right now. I'm talking about um, winning people to Christ. And I'm all for having as many lines out in the water as possible. But I'll tell you this as a pastor. I think also um, part of my job is to look at this from the perspective of efficiency, of everything that we're doing, of all the resources that we're investing. What is God blessing? What, what, what is working? And we want to put uh, the, the bulk of our resources in what is producing the most amount of fruit. And so if you looked at, for example, last year, we received about 200 new members in our church. And that's a, that's a typical year for us. Our church runs about 2,000 right now. And so we, we receive about 200 new members a year. If you went down through that list and asked the question, and, and I do, and our leaders do, I think we should, ask the question, now, what was our first contact with that person? How did we come to know them? What, what was the mechanism through which God uh, brought them into our church family? No question about the fact, year after year after year, the number one answer to that question is through the doors of the counseling ministry. That is by far our best um, source of evangelistic contacts. That's by far our best source of new members. By far, that's what allows us to position ourselves in our community, not as people who are mad at the world or not as people who are, who are mad at the politicians or who are upset about all of this. We want to be known as the church that has resources available for people in our town who are hurting. And so we want people to know that if your marriage is in trouble, you can send, you can go over to the church house, and there are people who are trained, skilled, loving, prepared to sit down and talk with you about those problems. 
If you're struggling raising your children, you can go over there and they'll help you. We want everybody in our community to know someone whose life was changed as a result of a a redeeming work of Jesus Christ, Uh, the truth of the word of God that they received over at the church. I want our mayor to know that. I want our mayor, when he thinks about those kind of community issues, to think about our church as an important community asset. I want our judges for sure to think about that. I want the prosecuting attorney to think about that. I want the public school superintendents to think about that, even though we have our own Christian school, etc., etc. I want the sheriff to think from that particular perspective. When they have community needs, I want them to think about, you can send persons like that over to the church, and they are going to find help. And so there's no question about the fact that that if you're going to be involved in counseling, especially if you're going to open that up to your community, which I would strongly, strongly suggest that you do, you're not going to be in it very long before you're going to find out that someone comes in and they say they're struggling with their marriage, but you find out that they don't know Christ, either on their entrance forms or even in some of the early part of the conversation or they're struggling with depression, and you find out fairly early in the conversation that they don't know Christ or problems raising their children, problems at work, problems with money, whatever it might be. And so the question you have to answer is, now, where and how does evangelism fit into that particular process? What do I do with a person who has come? They didn't come to say, I don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Would you please give me the gospel? That's not the presenting problem. It's I'm struggling in my marriage. I'm struggling with whatever. So, so, so what is the ethical perspective? What is the biblical perspective on handling evangelistic opportunities like that? And This morning I want to try to present um, three main responses that need to be in place to help us handle evangelistic opportunities. And this is a workshop. So if you've got a question, if you think something needs to be clarified or balanced, feel free to just raise your hand. We can take this any way we need to take it in order to try to be as helpful um, as we possibly can. But, but what are some responses that need to be in place? Well, first of all, certainly avoid the, the wrong extremes in all of this. See, in any evangelistic opportunity, you have to decide how and at what point you try to bridge the gap from the presenting problem In other words, the issue that brought that person to counseling, to a a presentation of the gospel. And I'm suggesting that when that happens, we have to avoid uh, two wrong extremes. One would be to rush the issue. To expect the counselee to be immediately ready to hear a full presentation of the gospel and to, to, to be able to make a credible profession for Christ in that first session. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, obviously, the Holy Spirit can do whatever he wants to do. I I want to be sure that I have said that, and and maybe you talk for three minutes, and the person says, I'm ready to trust Christ. I mean, and maybe that happens in your particular situation, but but, but humanly speaking, I do think it is possible for us to, to actually rush the issue. And I know some in our movement have said, well, we don't really counsel unbelievers, And I understand what that means. Their point is we evangelize unbelievers. I get that. But but the question is how do you compassionately, how do you effectively, how do you biblically, how do we even model Christ's approach to evangelizing people when that was not their first question? For example, let's say a, a woman comes in because of her marriage problem. 
Well, as soon as we find out that she doesn't know the Lord, I don't think we say, oop, stop that sniffling about your husband. You're, you're not a believer. We're not going to talk about your marriage. I intend to talk to you about the four spiritual laws. Well, Jesus Christ never dumped canned evangelistic approaches on people. Jesus did not rush the issue. And I think we have to recognize this. When a person comes, again, from the community, someone that you don't have any kind of a prior relationship with, when they come to see you for counseling, we've got the problem here of a stranger talking to a stranger about a stranger. And what I mean by that is they don't know you. Why would they trust what you have to say? You don't know them. How do you know the best way to bring the gospel to bear? And they don't know anything about Jesus. I don't know. I realize you all here are living in the Bible Belt, but but where I'm from... um, People are, are ignorant of the gospel. And that was a little bit of sarcasm. That's my love language. But um, again, the people that come to see us for counseling, they are completely ignorant of the gospel. It's not unusual at all for me to have to say to people who come to see me for counseling, now listen, this is the Bible. It has two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Do you realize for many people that's news? Where else would they have even learned that? The Old Testament has 39 books. The New Testament has 27. It's not unusual at all for me to have to point out. Now, those big numbers, those are chapters. The little numbers, those are verses. They they know nothing about the Bible. In fact, for some of them, you almost want to say, no, turn it right side up. I mean, they just don't, don't know anything about the Word. And I don't know what you think about this, but there's actually a side of me that likes to talk to folks in that situation because no one else has messed them up. I mean, you have, shame on me for saying that, but, but you have a, a blank slate theologically on which to work. And again, the Holy Spirit can do anything he wants to do. But if you're talking to a person who, who does not know a thing about Jesus Christ and on the assumption that you're going to spend some amount of time gathering data just to try to get to know them, some before you would even present the gospel if you thought that was the time to do it, I don't believe that the average person is able to assimilate enough biblical truth in order to make a, a credible profession for Christ in the first session. Now, there are, there are, there are, rule, are uh, exceptions to every rule. Please don't throw the thief on the cross. I mean, I realize there weren't multiple sessions there. I mean, don't, don't give me all that. But I'm just saying in a general situation, I don't find that the average person is ready to make a credible decision for Christ um, on the first session. Now, I'll tell you this, they are ready to do two things, though. Here's one, they're ready to come back. Do you realize how many people in our culture would say, I have no friends? I mean, I got my Facebook friends, if you want to call those friends, but I don't have anybody that if I had a problem in my heart that I was really struggling with, that I would be able to sit down and actually talk with someone about it. Did you realize that? that that's what many people in our culture would say, I feel lonely. And I don't have anybody that I can talk to. Now, if that's true, then add what's going on in the the social work arena, where as a result of the pressure of managed health care, and I'm not not speaking negatively or positively, I'm just trying to make a sociological observation that helps us understand why it's so important for churches to offer this. Do Do you realize back in the old days, and I am certainly qualified to use that phrase with integrity, back in the old days, What would happen in the average town when a person was having trouble, they would go and they would sit down with a what? With a talking psychologist. 
And that secular talk, that's what they were called, a secular talking psychologist would spend 45 minutes with them or whatever it was going to be. That secular talking psychologist would, generally in the first session, give that person a label out of the DSM, whatever version it was, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, along with its corresponding number. Why was it so important that clients, counselees, were given a label out of the DSM for or whatever and its corresponding number? Well, the answer is because the counselor then was going to send that diagnosis to whom? To the insurance company. You understand, in that model, in that paradigm, it was generally not the counselee who was paying the bill. It was the medical insurance company who was paying the bill. That's why it was so important to have the label. That's why it was so important to have the, the diagnosis. Well, you understand now, many medical insurance companies are not going to pay for that kind of care anymore, or they're not going to pay for many sessions. Now, I'm, I'm not beating on my chest about that. I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that's bad. That's not my point. I'm just saying that is a sociological fact. Talking psychologists um, are rarer by the day because it's hard to make a living unless you're dealing with people who are wealthy enough they can pay those fees or unless you're dealing with a situation where the government is subsidizing it. It's very hard to be a talking psychologist anymore. That is just a fact. And what that means, think about it from the user perspective, what that means is for people in our communities who are hurting, now they have one less source to go to in order to talk about their problems. Now, Ding, ding, ding. Is that an opportunity for the Church of Jesus Christ? If you have any kind of an entrepreneurial spirit about you at all, and I think as followers of Jesus Christ we should, if you have an entrepreneurial spirit about you at all, I hope you would say, my, oh, my, oh, my. We don't want anybody in this town who is hurting, who is looking for someone to talk to, that we would not provide that resource in order to help them. And so that's why I think churches ought to make um, these kind of ministries available. And so when you talk to a person and, and you've had session one and, and you or they do not believe they're prepared yet to, to make a credible profession of faith, they are certainly ready to come back. They are going to be so glad that you were willing to talk with them. Here's what they'll often say as well. And do you have anything that I could read so I could understand this more? Well, for crying out loud, this is a great time to be involved in the biblical counseling movement because we've got more resources than ever before that we can put in the hands of people in order to help them study. So it's not unusual at all for us to go a number of weeks before that person is really, truly uh, pre prepared to hear the gospel. So I'm saying one of the extremes we have to avoid is to, to rush the issue. You know, Jesus didn't rush evangelistic contacts. Jesus did not rush evangelistic opportunities. In fact, here's an example. It's the example of the rich young ruler in Luke 18. Do you remember that? And we're not going to actually do any exegesis on that, but just think about what you know about that story. The man comes and says to the Lord, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Right? That was his question. And you might say, man, this guy is ripe. This guy is ready to trust Christ. Nope, he wasn't. In fact, when you step back and think more carefully about that question, you understand the problem. What must I do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus did not give him a clear presentation of the gospel. Do you realize that? In fact, Jesus said, go and sell all you have. First of all, he said, keep the law. 
And then the man said, I've done that from my youth. Hey, keep the law. What, what kind of a gospel presentation is that for crying out loud? That's what Jesus said to him. And then when the man said, amazingly, why did Jesus say that? To help the man understand, you can't do anything to inherit eternal life. And the law was given to be your schoolmaster in order to help you change your question. Is there anyone who can help me achieve eternal life in light of the fact that the law has proven that I am guilty of sin and therefore not qualified to earn my own way? That was the point of the first response that Jesus gave. Amazingly, the man said, I've done that from my youth. Seriously? This guy is not anywhere near ready to trust Christ, which is why. What did Jesus say next? Go sell all you have. What? And think about it. That's Jesus' gospel presentation. Keep all the law. What? Go sell all you have. What? What? That's exactly what Jesus did, obviously, because he knew that man's heart. He knew that man was not ready to repent. He knew that that man was not ready to place his faith and trust in what Christ was going to do on the cross. And at least, as far as we know, we don't know the whole story, but but as far as we know, Jesus never gave a complete presentation of the gospel to that man. I'm simply saying, don't rush it. Um, Don't rush it. So there's nothing wrong with getting more data about the person's problem with the goal of just building involvement with them. There's nothing wrong with doing some teaching for the purpose of helping this person see his or her need for Christ. There's nothing wrong with trying to learn as much as you can about this person so you can see the most effective way to actually present the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think all that falls under the category of building involvement and establishing credibility. So don't rush the issue. Here's the other side. Don't ignore the issue. In other words, don't be unaware of or unconcerned about the fact that the person in front of you doesn't know the Lord. Here's a troubling thought. How many people are going to go and sit down and talk to counselors today in this country, and they'll talk about all sorts of problems, they'll hear all sorts of advice, they'll receive all sorts of counsel that addresses something in their life other than their greatest need? That is to repent and trust Christ that tragic? And we would expect that if the counselor is unsaved. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He can't understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So an unsaved counselor would look at an unsaved counselee and drag out this endless array of labels and theories and diagnoses and drugs and recommendations, all the while being like the priests of Hebrews 10, 11, who stood daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. So it's a tragic thing, I hope we would believe, of how many people in our country are going to sit down and talk to a counselor today, and they're going to hear advice about something other than their greatest need. Well, let's make it worse. How many people who are hurting in our country will sit down with a Christian counselor and hear all sorts of advice and all sorts of ideas and all sorts of theories and receive all sorts of labels where that Christian counselor will not talk to them about their greatest need. It's amazing how many people call themselves Christian counselors, yet they don't use the word of God. 
It's amazing how many people call themselves Christian counselors, and yet they never, ever would broach the issue of whether or not this person is a um, genuine follower of Christ. And the reason for that is they have immersed themselves so much in secular theory, secular terminology, secular methodology, that it's very comfortable for them to, to counsel in that world from that presuppositional base so they sound very much like the secularists, and it would be a very unnatural gap for them to actually bridge over and talk about the gospel. In fact, it, here's, some, here's a haunting thought. How many unsaved people will go to churches for counsel, and what they'll receive from that, from that church is not dramatically different than what they would have received had they gone to a secular counselor? Now, please tell me you think that is way, way, way bad. Please tell me you think that is unbelievably irresponsible. I'm telling you right now, if I thought that my counselees were going to hear from me exactly the same thing, they would hear from the unsaved counselor down the street, I would go up on the roof and jump off. And I would hate to be in a position where my counsel was no different than the unbelieving person um, down the road. And I realize this. I mean, let's just be honest about this. The reason that could happen, even in the Christian church, is because some would take the position and have uh, that salvation is not a person's greatest need. But let me just quote from one of the hotter pens in the, the Christian counseling world that um, has written over the last 25 years in a book that had an incredible number of condescending statements toward pastors and local churches, here's what this man said. Unless we understand sin as rooted in unconscious beliefs and motives and figure out how to expose and deal with these forces within our personality, the church will continue to promote superficial adjustments while psychotherapists with or without biblical foundations will do a better job of restoring troubled people to more effective functioning. That is an incredibly irresponsible statement. And I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't learn all that the Word of God teaches us about the heart, about motivation, etc., etc., but to take the position, because what he was arguing for is a, a view of sanctification that comes more out of Freud and Maslow than it does from the Scripture anyway. And, and the shot he just um, fired over the Christian or biblical counseling bow was, unsaved counselors would do a better job than Christians uh, unless you buy into my particular approach. The implication of that is that salvation is not a person's greatest need. And I think we need to say strongly that is not true. A person doesn't know Christ, their most pressing need, their most immediate need, their most important need is to repent of their sin and confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, Think about this verse as well, 2 Corinthians 3.11, which says this, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's why you would have churches, and some of them large, some of them influential, but the, the counseling that is provided by that church is essentially secular. It's secular theory, sometimes with a few Bible verses sprinkled over the top. But in 
counseling like that, it's possible for people to come and not hear a clear presentation of the gospel. I believe that passage describes much of what is happening in the evangelical church. I'm afraid, and when the Apostle Paul says he's afraid about something, you ought to listen up. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds, whose minds? Those of you in the Corinthian church, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Now, what's the bottom line? I'm trying to say so far, um, avoid the wrong extremes of either rushing the issue or ignoring the issue. Now, now what's a second response to these evangelistic opportunities? I think we ought to rejoice. Here's what I think. I don't know if you would agree with this. I always want to have a specific list of people in my life that I'm trying to win to Christ. Always. I want to have, and I'm not just talking about in a, in a fuzzy, ethereal way. I'm talking about, in a, I, I think every Christian ought to think this way. I think you ought to have a specific list of people uh, that you are concerned about by name, that you are praying for daily by name, that you are looking for opportunities to, to bring them closer to Christ by name, that, that, that you're strategizing about that, that, that you're planning for that, that you're working toward that. Specific people you're trying to win. Do you agree with me on that? We're ambassadors for Christ. And I don't understand. I don't. I don't understand how distracted so many followers of Jesus Christ seem to be for that. I think we ought to be passionate about that because we believe there is really a heaven to be gained and there's a hell to be shunned. And I tell the folks in our church all the time things like this. I I don't get, I'm not saying it's sinful, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I just don't get people who who download entire series uh, of television shows and sit around for hours and hours and watch them. That would be like purgatory. I'm just going to tell you that right now. I hate television, absolutely, unless it's news or sports, it's, it's of the devil as far as I'm concerned. And um, I realize I'm a bit legalistic on that point, but I, just to let you know, what I tell the folks in our church family is, now look, for some of you, here's the best thing you could do. Get a bunch of your friends together because it's going to take more than you to actually pull this off, but go to your television. And the reason it takes so many of you is because yours is so big anymore. So get your friends together and pick that baby up, have one person go over to the front door and open the front door, take that television out to the front door and heave it as far out your house as you possibly can. And then actually sit down on a chair and read a book. And don't confuse having bought a book with having read a book. And I I am convinced that so many followers of Jesus Christ are just, just absolutely distracted from things that really matter. Seriously sitting around and watching a whole series uh, of television shows in one setting? Oh, for crying out loud. Get on your knees and pray for some lost people. Get on your knees and, and think about how I can, I, I can draw so-and-so to Christ and how am I doing at this whole matter and, and just all of that. And um, I think churches ought to be passionate about that as well. So when it comes to when God gives me an opportunity like this, I think we ought to rejoice. Well, why? Because counseling and evangelism are all part of the same process. In fact, people often ask me, now, now how does uh, outreach and, and, and counseling fit together, and how does it fit in with discipleship? And this particular diagram is what has helped me try to articulate that the best. And so let me spend a, minute, a couple of minutes and just go through this. Do you understand what that is? That's a, that's a river. We all got that? 
That is a river. And think about that as the discipleship river. Now, you know what those are? Yeah, those are boats or canoes representing individual followers of Jesus Christ. And you could think about this river as the discipleship river. You could think about every one of those canoes as an individual follower of Jesus Christ. And a significant part of our job is providing resources and providing oversight and providing accountability that helps every person in our church grow at the rate that God wants them to grow. Do you agree with that? Someday, I believe, I'm going to have to give an account for every member of our church. That's what the book of Hebrews says. That's why we don't want people who are coming to our church who are not members. So we encourage people, you need to join a church somewhere. That's one of the problems in the evangelical world. You have all these loosey-goosey people who have never gotten around to joining a local church, and therefore they're not under anybody's authority or accountability. When a person becomes a member of our church, they immediately go on to a deacon's care group. We have 36 deacons, and those 36 deacons shepherd everybody on their list. And then every month at our meetings, those deacons have to give an account for the shepherding work that they have done with everybody on their list. And then three times a year, we go through the entire membership list asking these questions. Do we know where so-and-so is? Are they attending faithfully? Are they growing spiritually? Are they serving sacrificially? And are we serving them? And if the answer to any of those questions is no, for any of our members, the next question is, well, what are we doing about it? We can't have people around here who aren't growing. We can't have people around here who aren't serving. We can't, have, we can't do that. We have to give an account for all these people someday. So what are we doing about that? And if the next answer from that deacon or that pastor is, well, we've done everything that we know to do and the person will not repent and change, then the next question, regrettably, is where are they in the church discipline process? We can't, we're not just playing games here. This is the church of Jesus Christ, and we all have to be growing at the rate. So that takes a lot of work. <laughs> what I just described, that takes a ton of work. A ton, I believe the church ought to be a progressive sanctification machine. I think that's part of our challenge. However, is that all we're interested in? And obviously, if I'm going to ask it like that, uh, probably not. Uh, do you, and you can't really see it on, in the lighting in this room. But what that's showing is there's another river living, leading down into that with another canoe. Do you know what that is? That's outreach. That's trying to get more canoes in the river. And as I said earlier, I think churches ought to be passionate we, we, ought to, we ought to be weeping over the, the lost condition. In fact, we say it this way. We live in Tippecanoe County, and we say it like this. We want Tippecanoe County to be a really hard place to get to hell from. I want every person, and I mean this, every person in our community to have had a meaningful interaction with a follower of Jesus Christ and an opportunity to hear a credible presentation of the gospel. Because I believe this. I believe many people in our towns, it's not that they're gospel hardened. It's that they're gospel ignorant. No one has taken the time to love them enough to tell them about how to know the Lord. And again, you might say, I thought you were a Calvinist. I am. I operate on the assumption that every person in our town is elect. That's right. I, that, that's just the assumption on which I operate. And they are going to have to prove me wrong by rejecting Christ. See, my Calvinism makes me more passionate about outreach. It makes me more passionate about evangelism. So if you've been in church work, a number of you have been in church work for a long, long time, you know it's really hard to be good on both of those. Some churches are, are better at follow-up discipleship, not so good at outreach. Some churches are good at outreach, not so good at follow-up, right? 
It's hard to hit, if I could change the metaphor, it's hard to hit on both of those cylinders. However, even if you are, is there anything left to the task? If we're doing well in outreach, if we're doing well in normal discipleship, is there anything left to the task? And let me answer that with a question. Think about your church, whatever church that might be. Is everybody who's in your church in the center of the discipleship river growing at the rate that God wants them to grow? benefiting from the normal discipleship means and methods of the church. Now, some of them, they, they, here's what their canoe's like. It's like a junior higher canoeing, right? They're going bzz, 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 around and around and around and around, and they are not getting anywhere. Well, what do you do with people like that who are not benefiting from the normal discipleship means and methods of the church? The answer in some churches is we send them somewhere else to a different river, to a group of people who have an entirely different source of truth than our normal discipleship, an entirely different educational spectrum than we do. So what people who are hurting and not benefiting from the normal discipleship means and methods of the church, what they're going to get is an entirely different approach to change. Or the answer is we have nothing. We really don't have any resources in place to help a person who's not benefiting from the normal discipleship means and methods of the church. I think we need to add something to the diagram. You know what that is? That is an eddy. You know what an eddy is? An eddy is a wide place in the river where the water is not as deep and the current's not as swift. And, and for us, that's where biblical counseling fits into this entire conceptualization. We want, and, and you say, why did you use a river? Here's the point. The people who are working in biblical counseling, they're using the exact same source of truth as the people who are, using, who are doing normal discipleship. They're using the exact same methodology. In fact, I think you can overuse the word counseling. You could just as easily refer to this as um, concentrated discipleship or accelerated discipleship. It's... it's it's focusing in on that particular problem or set of problems that the person brought into the room. I think you could also call it um, temporary discipleship. Why is it temporary? Because how long do they have to be in the eddy? Only long enough to be heading down the right trail where you can plug them into the normal discipleship means and methods of the church. In fact, from my perspective, it's not so much that a church has a counseling ministry, it's that a church is a counseling ministry. In other words, these principles of sufficiency of Scripture and biblical progressive sanctification are penetrating and permeating our entire DNA. Everything that we're trying to do on every level is uh, theologically and methodologically consistent. So the point of that is, why should we rejoice when there's an evangelistic opportunity? Because it fits into one of the primary missions of our church. Now, I realize that we haven't had time to talk about all the different community ministry that we're trying to do. We are, we're trying to penetrate our town big time. And so that's why if you've been to our place, why did we, instead of building an auditorium, why did we build a community center? It's like a big YMCA. It's because we're trying to love the fire out of the people in our town. Why do we have all these outdoor athletic fields that tomorrow would be packed with unbelieving people? They're not church leagues. I think church leagues are of the devil. They're community leagues. Why do we do that? Why do we have a skate park? If I turned on the, the camera, and I actually have the ability to do this right now, to turn on the camera of that skate park, I'm telling you, it's going to be crawling with kids from our community. And they are as nasty looking as all get out. They got everything 
pierced, everything tattooed. They are nasty, 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 nasty. Why? And I could just go on and on and on and on and on. Why do we do that kind of stuff? It was mentioned last night that we have a residential treatment program for at-risk girls, young ladies who are struggling with unplanned pregnancies and drug abuse and alcohol abuse and eating disorders and self-harm. They come to us from all around the country and from different countries around the world. Why would we want to, to actually, as a ministry philosophy, try to penetrate our community in that way and do so much um, outreach kind of work? It's because we're convinced of the efficacy of this. See, that's one of the, why is it that some churches don't want to reach their communities anyway? Why is it that some churches would actually reject what I'm talking about, at least in terms of anything that's going to get done? Here's the answer, and it's not very nice. We don't want those kind of people around here. Like you might say, a skate park. What are you talking about, skate park? You better be careful. Some of those guys might come to Jesus. I know of 22 of them who have. You say, oh, I hope they haven't come to church. Oh, yeah, they do. You say, do they, do they dress better? Nope. They don't have any common sense. Most of them don't have dads. And so I'm going to tell you, they come to church, it's as nasty as all get out. It's, it's just na- the, the, the ear, things are pierced. I say, why do you want that in your tongue? I mean, they, everything pierced, everything tattooed. They, they bring their skateboards with them to church. And, and if you know anything about skateboarders, they don't understand walking. So if a skateboarder was going to go from here to there, he would not walk, he would skate. And so they come into our church family, our church foyer. They're not being disrespectful. It's just the way they are. Sunday morning, they come into our church foyer, they put their skateboards down, and they skate to the auditorium. And, and I don't know what you think about that, but I just have told the ladies in our church, stop wearing open-toed shoes. <laughs> Be- because those skateboarders are as welcome as everybody else. Right? They can sit right next to the hypocrites and backbiters. They are as welcome as everybody else. And it's interesting because many times no one has taught these kids to sit in the back. And so they'll line up right in the front, right there. In fact, one day I I was preaching out of the book of Habakkuk. So I'm I'm waxing eloquent out of the book of Habakkuk. And I happened to look down in that particular particular service. We have multiple services. But in that particular one, every seat in this particular section was taken up by a skateboarder. And again, they're nasty, nasty, nasty looking they, they had their, their skateboards and their helmets under their chairs. They were going to go skate after the service. But do you know what every one of them had on their laps? A, a copy of the Bible open to the book of Habakkuk. And they're carefully paying attention as I'm preaching away out of the book of Habakkuk. And, and what I said as soon as I just recognized what was going on, God, thank you so much for, for, for allowing me the, the privilege. This is why I went in the ministry. I have zero interest in pastoring country club church. That would drive me nuts. Or, 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 or we're all that in a bag of chips church. I mean, that would drive me insane. I want to pastor misfit church. See, see we want to get as many people who, who don't know the Lord into the river as possible. They are as welcome as ever, and they could bring their baggage in boxcars because of the power of the Holy Spirit and his ability to help people change. I want to pastor misfit church. I want to pastor, we made a mess church. Uh, that's the whole ministry philosophy. So you rejoice. That's the point of all that. You rejoice uh, when these opportunities come. And also, counseling is a tremendous setting in which to do evangelistic work that is thorough. See, see, one of the greatest blights on the church of Jesus Christ today is evangelism in the past that has been done in a way that is shoddy, shallow, superficial, I think of one counselee who came in, and he and his wife had been married for 16 years, and they reported all 16 years had been terrible. 
They, they said they were followers of Christ, that they attended a, another Bible-believing church. And so I started just at some point asking the husband when he trusted Christ. Here's what he told me. A pastor had come to his house, told him a few things about Jesus, and then asked him if he wanted to go to heaven. And the man said, at that point, I wanted to go to heaven, and I really wanted the pastor to leave so I could turn on the ball game. And so he made whatever decision this pastor told him to make in order to get the guy out of his house. Uh, that became another notch on the pastor's belt. And frankly, uh, another man who thought he was saved when I don't think he was. And it was interesting, in that particular situation, both he and his wife concluded that they had never genuinely repented and believed and eventually in the counseling sessions um, came to trust Christ as Savior and Lord. But what I like about this is when you're doing it in the counseling room, it's not like you have to stick your foot in the front door and get a track through it before they slam it. And you can do it in a way that is thorough. I think of one woman who came to see us. She worked at a motel just right down the road, and if she was struggling with depression, she knew that our church did biblical counseling. And so um, she came in, and she um, started talking with us uh, about her depression and it wasn't long before um, it became very obvious that she did not know the Lord. And um, we started talking with her about what was going on in her heart and what was going on in her life, all the issues regarding her depression. We told her a little bit about Jesus. We started to give her some things about the gospel, et cetera, et cetera. And then in each one of those sessions, uh, session five, session six, session seven, um, she just really was not ready to repent and believe. And so about session eight, I said to her, Listen, um, we've talked about a lot of good things. I've showed you a number of things from the Word of God that I hope have been helpful to you. But um, your homework for this coming week is to answer the question, are you ready to become a follower of Jesus Christ? And if not, why not? And she came back the, the following uh, Monday, and she said this. Listen, I'm not ready to become a follower of Christ. I've been a single woman all my life. I have done what I wanted to do. I have um, uh, lived for myself. I have done things my way. And if I understand what you're showing me from the word of God, you're saying that when I trust Christ as my Savior, he would then be my Lord. I would be submitting my life to him. And I'm not sure I'm ready to stop living for myself. Now, I don't know what you think about that, but there's a side of me that was very glad for that. In that I'm glad that the woman was willing to be honest. And I'm glad she felt comfortable enough to tell me what was honestly going on in her heart instead of making some sort of a shallow decision in order to please me that wasn't going to make any difference anyway. And what was interesting about that particular case, because I, I said, well, listen, if you want to continue to talk about things, as long as you don't mind me talking to you from the Bible and talking to you about Jesus, I'm happy to do that. And she said, no, I really enjoy these sessions. I, I, I want to keep talking. I'm just not ready to make that decision. A couple weeks later, she came in, and I typically ask folks at the beginning, how was your week? And so I asked her that question, and I was kind of fiddling around getting stuff out of my desk, my files or whatever, so I wasn't really even listening carefully, believe it or not. And um, so I said, how was your week? And she said, I'm ready. And it was one of those where I wasn't really looking at her face yet, and I was looking around, and I, you're what? She said, well, I'm ready, and here's how goofy I am. Ready to what? <laughs> I, had, I had no idea what she had. And she gave me the, you are the goofiest pastor slash counselor on the face of the earth. I'm ready to become a Christian, she said. And, in that, and I have no idea 
It's not like, well, what was the magic bullet in session eight or session eight? I have no idea what it was, but, but, well, ultimately we know what it was. It was the Holy Spirit of God using his word at the time of his selection, the time of his selection to um, bring her to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And my point is we were able to do it in a way that was thorough. We spent hour after hour after hour helping her think through the implications of the gospel. Now, learn to bridge the gap well. What are some of the methods that we could use in order to help a person come to know Christ? And they're, they're endless. They're endless for sure. But let me just share three of them that I tend to use in um, evangelistic um, conversations with my counselees. One of them is to talk with them about the sovereignty of God. Now, we typically begin a counseling case by gathering data, by learning about the problem, by establishing involvement, by giving hope. So, so we're hearing a, a, a lot of the story. And oftentimes it's very bad. But at some point in that conversation, especially with a person who doesn't know the Lord, we have to raise the question of the sovereignty of God. Joe, do you think any of this is a surprise to God? Do you think any of this is outside of his control? In other words, what might a sovereign God be wanting to accomplish in the midst of these difficulties? That's where a verse like Romans 8.28 can serve so well. And we would frequently go to that passage in that particular situation. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. For those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. And many of our counselees at that point would say, you, you mean God could have something to do with this? Yeah, Joe, God might have something to do with this. Well, I haven't thought about God for a long time. I've been so busy running around after this or after this. I haven't had much time for God. Well, when you get a person to that point, then it's time to give them the counselor face. As if, did you hear what you just said? Is it possible that that is a significant part of the problem? And then, I think we would ask something like, is it possible that a sovereign God is using the difficulties of this situation to draw you to himself? In fact, when I prepared this session, I actually went to some of the people in our church who had come to Christ in counseling, and I asked them, what kind of things did God allow to come into your life that made you open to hearing the gospel? One person said we were going through bankruptcy. Another one said I was unfaithful to my spouse and I lost my wife and my kids. Another person said a friend of mine contracted AIDS. Another one said my condo burnt down. Another one said we filed for divorce because we had no hope. Another person told me my brother was killed. Someone else said my life was empty. And it was helpful for each one of those persons at the appropriate time to begin thinking about, well, is it possible that a sovereign God is allowing those difficulties in your life in order to do something for you, in order to draw you to himself? Now, sometimes when you say that to counselees, they might say, well, that's really mean. Uh, that, that God would allow some sort of a difficulty into my life in order to draw me to himself, to which I would typically then turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 4, which says the goodness of God leads to repentance. And the fact of the matter is for most of us, if not all of us, 
saved or unsaved. God has been good to us in all sorts of ways, and that didn't do the job. And many times we respond to God's goodness by acting as if we earned it ourselves or acting as if we produced it ourselves. And when the goodness of God does not lead us to repentance, he has other methodology. And many times that then becomes the, the, the door through which we can start talking about the saving work of Jesus Christ. A second um, just method would be the bigger battle. We typically have whiteboards in all of our offices. I, I like to draw, and um, I try to do it humorously just to try to bring some humor into the counseling session. I don't have a whiteboard right now, but, but if you can picture this, what I would typically draw for my counselees would be a couple of stick figures, both of them having boxing gloves, boxing at each other, with each of them having a heart, and then with a tank um, uh, facing them. And then we go through and we try to help them identify who are these different people. So one of the people is going to have a little dress on, the stick figure. And so the wife will say, oh, that's me. And the husband, oh, that's me. And then we'll ask, well, what are they doing? And that usually takes a little time because I don't draw boxing gloves very well. But eventually they get around understanding, oh, yeah, we're, we're fighting with one another. And then we eventually get to them trying to understand, what is that other thing facing you? Well, that's a tank. Usually takes a while to get that based on the tank that I draw. But, but then what we say is, now listen, if you were trying to help a, a couple that was in a, a fist fight solve their bigger issues, is it best just to talk about the fist fight or is it better to talk about the larger battle they're in? And then we go to a passage like James 4, which explains that very issue. Why, what is the source of quarrels among you? Is it not the lusts that are in your own heart well, well, why do you have so many competing lusts in your own heart? It's because you're an enemy of God. Who is it that's driving the tank? And the answer is the God of heaven and earth. But the good news is, and then I just typically would draw a cross right over that, the good news is that God has made it possible through the finished work of his son for you to come to have peace with him um, through his shed blood. Then the last one that I'll mention to you, you were never designed to run the show. And I'll often, I try to communicate that as lovingly as possible. Uh, but at some point, we'll try to help our counselees understand, listen, you have been trying to operate your life in a way that is inconsistent with your design. You're the one who's been running the show. You're the one who's making the decisions. You're the one who's deciding what's true. And let's face the fact, it is a mess. Maybe you need a Savior, and maybe you need a Lord. Maybe you need someone who can take charge of your life and help you live in a way that is consistent with God's design. You know, there's so much more we can say about this. But um, I'm so glad God gives us the opportunities to have these kind of conversations. One of the couples that comes to my mind as I think about this particular subject is a, a couple that came in they were both so depressed that they couldn't even make a sentence without crying. And they started telling me their story. And what had happened was they had borrowed some money from other family members, started a business, and the business went bankrupt. So now they're facing professional corporate bankruptcy. They're facing individual bankruptcy. They're also their parents and family members from whom they borrowed the money are so mad at them. They are absolute failures, and they are so depressed. And just to kind of give it to you quickly, I remember when I started talking with them about grace. 
they had been part of a very legalistic approach to religion, a works-based religion. And I remember when I started talking with them about grace. It was almost like you take a piece of sweet candy and put it in your mouth and just suck it. And they started thinking and saying, you mean it's possible for us to have a personal relationship with God where he would accept us not on the basis of what we have done or not done, but on the finished work of his son? And we explained to them that it was possible for them, and it was just a couple of weeks before they placed their faith and trust in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. They started growing like weeds. We started teaching them how to communicate with those family members and ask their forgiveness. We started teaching them how to have a repayment plan. By God's grace, we were actually able to find him a job over at Purdue University where for the first time in his life he had a regular schedule and he had benefits. He had medical benefits. He had death, life insurance and all that sort of thing. And, and, and they started serving and growing. I remember the, the night I had the privilege of baptizing them. Uh, they just started growing. It was just, it was just marvelous, absolutely marvelous. About six months later, I'm sitting in a, a, a pastor's meeting, and someone comes over and taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, listen, the sheriff is on the phone. Um, he wants to talk to you right now. So I went over, and the sheriff said, listen, um, Jack Ewing, the man that I'm talking about, Jack Ewing was just in a truck accident, and he has been tragically killed. His wife is asking you to come right away. So I jump in the car. And I'm heading out to their house, and all the while, in addition just to grieving the loss of this dear new brother, I kept telling myself this, thank you, God, for making me a biblical counselor. Because, listen, when that guy hit Jack Ewing's truck, what did he need to have heard the most from his counselor? How he could tune up his self-image? How he could deal with his multiple personalities? How he could change the combination of his psychotic drugs? No, what he needed at that moment, that he knew that he knew that he was on his way to heaven because he had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for making us biblical counselors and help us to be as effective as we possibly can at bridging that gap between the problem that they bring into the room and opportunities to present the saving work of Christ. One other thing that we're going to be done. Listen, I, I am, I'm to the place now, age-wise, where I'm starting to wonder how many more times I have around the track, which is also causing me to wonder, there's so many things I don't know. I'm fairly certain I'm going to die with a whole lot of things that I don't know and a whole lot of things that I never got very good at. But, but you know what? The older I get, I re- and I want to be careful. I'm for training. Obviously, I do a lot of this. I'm for training. But the older I get, the more convinced I am that the counseling process has less to do with me and more to do with the work of the Holy Spirit in the room anyway. I don't want to be lackadaisical about it. I don't want to be flip about that. But I really, really believe that. And I believe this. If you have a heart for winning people to Christ, if you have a real passion for them, and you want to do that in a balanced way in the counseling room, God is going to lead God is going to direct, and God is going to not let the the proclamation of his word return void. And I also believe this. When I'm sitting on the the, the rest home porch, rocking my rocking chair, and I can hardly remember my first name, I hope there's a whole bunch of people from our church, and we're all rocking together. And you know what we're thinking about? All the people that God gave us the privilege to lead to Christ. What a great opportunity it is to be one of his ambassadors. Well, listen, thanks for your patience. Hope you have a great lunch. Hope you have a great rest of the day. Copyright 2014, IBCD. 
all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.